Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to finally start this off. I feel like we've been giving this a lot of hype, so we have to yep. deliver. Mm-hmm. And I think we should just jump right in because we have so many notes. <laughs> this is going to be a long one. Yeah, so I guess this is the official kickoff of our series on the Russian Revolution, and we're not exactly how long this is going to be. We think it's going to be long. Um, we're not exactly how we're going to do this in terms of like segmenting it out. Um, because this is such a humongous topic. It can take, you know, it obviously warrants hundreds and hundreds of hours of, uh, of, uh, you know, audio time, but we can only deliver a certain amount. Mm -hmm. But, it's a really crazy topic. It's it's like one of those topics where you really feel where that the world, uh, it's like the axis of where the world spins. It's just like such an impactful moment in world history. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to do a series on it. So it's going to be a, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to make it sound cooler? It's It's as hard for us to summarize what we're about to do as it was to research what we have done. So I think we should just jump right in and just pick a spot and see what happens. <laughs> so yeah. like, where do you, where do you want to start, Henry? Well, the hardest part about doing these shows is really deciding where to start. Yeah. I mean, especially with Russian history, it goes back centuries and centuries. We could start off with the Mongol invasion of the Kievan roofs in the 13th <laughs> yeah. century if we really wanted to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, another logical place would be starting off with the Industrial Revolution and the uh, emergence of a large proletariat. You know, we could also start the story off with, you know, the meeting of Marx and Engels. But something I want to avoid, and it's not that I want to avoid it, but it will just open too big of a can of worms for us to 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 really follow is not get that deep into actual Marxist philosophy in these episodes. Because if we start just going through all the different Marxist thinkers and socialist thinkers in the 19th century, we'll never actually get to the revolution. What my goal is for this is really explore what was the Russian Revolution. And this is definitely going to be an oversimplification, but... Generally, there are two ways that you can inter interpret the events that that um, that lead to the overthrow of the Romanov dynasty. And when I say two ways, there's many ways, but there's two primary ways. The first way is that 
it was a popular revolution that changed the existing social order. And, you know, this is the point of view of maybe a modern day socialist who are sympathetic to the Soviet Union or Fun just fact. sympathetic to like working class Marxist groups in general. Fun fact, this is actually the opinion that I had when I started looking into this topic. <laughs> okay. That it was a popular revolution. So we, we might see that opinion change. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because I come from the from the different perspective. Mm-hmm. The other way to look at this is that the Bolshevik Revolution was a political coup that mm-hmm. empowered a small minority of tyrants over the majority. Obviously, there are more nuanced interpretations, but at the very least, these are at you know the two ends of the extreme spectrum. Um, actually, there, there are actually way more extreme interpretations of the Russian Revolution, but if we talked about it, the podcast would probably be removed um, from the internet. Yeah. <laughs> but that's like maybe you know your typical kind of Che Guevara-wearing uh, college student and mm-hmm. your boomer con uncle. You know, those right. are the two oppo- opposing views. Actually, right. probably neither of them really had that much of an opinion on it. But neither one would really even know what this is. Yeah, <laughs> this is no. such a niche topic. <laughs> but those are those are two interpretations that are that, you know that oppose each other, right? Um, I'll be honest, I'm 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 with the latter. So you know, I, I kind of look at the Bolshevik Revolution going into this as more of a coup of a minority uh, that you know put up a, a tyrannical system over a majority. But maybe that will change as we go through this. Um, at least that's my viewpoint going in. That was my viewpoint going into it. still kind of my viewpoint now, but who knows, you know, how my opinion will change as we uncover more things. It's definitely the position that historians like Richard Pipes and Sean McMeekin hold who, um, you know, who, who I'm obviously going to rest it. Um, um, I'm going to reference a lot throughout this show. Um, if anyone knows who Richard Pipes is, Richard Pipes is very, or was a, he's since passed, he was a very uh, hardcore cold warrior from, uh, uh, I think he was from Poland, and uh, he was an advisor to the Reagan administration. So, you know, he wrote a, you know, a trilogy of books on on uh, the Rus- on the Russian Revolution. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like the one end, on the one end of the perspective. Um and then you get, then you can actually read from the revolutionaries themselves, like Leon Trotsky and, and Lenin. They, you know, they obviously documented their work and their opinions. Mm-hmm. But um, we're going to try to be objective. Um, probably not possible. But we're going to make an we're honest try effort. To be as objective as we can. <laughs> yeah. Probably we'll throw objectivism out the window at certain points and just insert and mm-hmm. project our opinions. But make a somewhat of an it's more fun thing. that way <laughs> it's more fun that way it will be too dry if it's completely objective object uh objective but going back to my original question is where do you start the story what are the conditions that allow something like this to happen because when you think about it it is truly incredible no matter how you feel about Lenin, throw all of your morality outside it's kind of an amazing story. The fact that this guy was able to, to take over the, the largest country in Europe. Yeah. So, um, here's what I propose 
how we here's how I here's how I propose we start this show or this series. I'm going to take a page from Dan Carlin, the great the great Dan Carlin, the best history podcaster of all time, because mm-hmm. whenever he starts a show, he starts somewhere dramatic. You know, he he'll he'll always start with a dramatic story mm-hmm. and then lead into the event. Sometimes that dramatic story is has has nothing to do with the real plot until you see where he's going with that. <laughs> We're going to start with a city on fire. And it's not Moscow, it's not St. Petersburg, but it's Paris. The year's 1871. Oh, should I cue some really like intense music right now? <laughs> Maybe, if you have time while editing this. <laughs> So pulling this back, we're going to go back a couple of decades. So we're we're in France. Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, aka Napoleon III, the nephew of the Napoleon, was elected and was elected president of France in December 1848, mainly through brand recognition. When his term was about to end, Napoleon III he seizes power through a coup, and in the following years. He declared himself Emperor Napoleon III. Now, Napoleon has a problem. He has a very reckless foreign policy, like his uncle. And his neighbors are able to exploit this. So Otto von Bismarck of Prussia was able to lure him into a war with Germany that Germany was using, or that Prussia at the time was was using for its own nationalist purposes of uniting German, the, the German states with each other. In short, Napoleon III loses this war. It doesn't go very well for him. And in fact, he's commander-in-chief of the French army. He's actually captured along with his entire army. So in response to this, an emergency government is set up in place in France to replace Napoleon and this is when the Third French Republic is declared. Meanwhile, the Germans arrive in Paris in, sep- in September 1870, and they put the city under siege. Now, this, is, this starts the ordeal that happens over the next couple of months. The Prussian siege of Paris is absolutely terrible. Living conditions become extremely bad. People start to starve. Um, the, you know, the population was forced to eat rats and things they found off the street. There are reports of them breaking into the Paris zoo and eating things like elephants. What the fuck? So people were starving due to this siege. Um, the army, the French army officially, and this is, you know, the event of the Franco-Prussian war right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the French army officially, and, and, you know, they, they unconditionally surrendered to the Germans and they're forced to sign a bad deal where, you know, they lose territory, lose territory. Why do I, I say territory, ter- territory in a very strange way. I don't know if people catch it. Territory. Territory. I don't know where I picked that up. Territory. We're on, we're on terror. Tor- we're on terror. Um, <laughs> they lose territory in a very uh, kind of an embarrassing way. They, they, they lose pieces of land that are connected to the French mainland, Alsace-Lorraine. And then to add insult to injury, as part of this peace treaty that ends the Franco-Prussian War, 
the Germans get to spike the football and do a touchdown dance. Like, and not just, you know, do a touchdown dance, but do a very obnoxious touchdown dance. As part of this treaty, 30,000 Prussian soldiers get to march through Paris in a victory parade. <laughs> Allegedly, you know, the French, they, after, after this march, they ran out into the streets and they started scrubbing the streets. <laughs> Why? Because the German soldiers are dirty. <laughs> yeah, it was just embarrassing. They were, um, you know, what's a good word for this? It escapes me. I don't know. Well, kind of makes sense why the French hated the Germans so much prior to World War One, though. It does make sense. There, it does. It does. This event definitely makes the French revanchist movement make. Uh, perfect sense in the context of what, you know, the events that lead up to World War One. But going back, after the war, among Napoleon III's haters, which were many in France, um, there was a fear that the new National Assembly that was now the French government was preparing to restore the French monarchy. The fear had arisen because the National Assembly was going to start making efforts to disarm Paris's National Guard. So the National Guard, they're just like your average everyday French person, right? These, these are like small business owners, like shoe shiners and factory workers and shit. Yeah, or what it, the socialists would call the, the proletariats, right? Yeah, proletariats, but not just uh, workers, but small business owners, like you said, just mm-hmm. the common person. Right. The comp, the, they were a normal citizens militia army to protect the city. Right. The reason why this new national assembly wanted to disarm them is because they were getting reports that this these these uh, militia groups were were showing signs of radical sympathies. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert: they decide not to disarm. <laughs> Thus begins a, a series of armed confrontations between the French police and uh, the, you know, this militia. In one of these confrontations, uh, I think two generals are killed. They're mm-hmm. captured and they're executed on the spot. And this eventually all leads into a citywide revolt. And the provincial government is forced to completely pull out of Paris. So a full-blown civil war breaks out for 72 days after the Franco-Prussian War. The original Franco, the original French Revolution is now, you know, it looks like it's going on loop. So after the French government is expelled from the city, this group starts holding elections where revolutionary candidates, they start taking power. Hence begins the legendary French Commune. Mm. And, um... The French government, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's retreats it, it retreats to Versailles, and um, in response to this commune, they send their own army. So they send the French army back and they encircle Paris. So Paris, just being under German siege, is now under siege of its own military. <laughs> just bad luck, huh? Uh, yeah, it's a shitty time. So government soldiers they enter Paris, and this is mid-May which begins a period known as Bloody Week, when 
basically the French army just went house to house and they were looking for revolutionaries. They were look at, looking for people as part of the commune. There was really horrible street fighting taking place. Uh, somewhere around, I think a thousand or so French soldiers were killed uh, between French soldiers and French police officers. And in response of this, uh, the communards start killing hostages. So when this is all settled, around 21,000 people are dead. And another 40,000 people are arrested. That's so nice. this was not just like your average riot. This was a body count that, you know, that equates to a, a full-blown war. Right. Now, it's important to note, this was not just communist. Earlier in France in 1848, there had actually been a handful of Marxists who made this concerted effort to essentially install the Communist Manifesto. But this time, it was just a collection of different groups. It was a collection of workers, you know, just pretty much anyone. You know, everyone had their own motivation. But what this, what this really amounts to is that it's the most impactful popular revolution up to this point in modern European history. And Marx himself, he concluded that it was the greatest moment up to this, this point in human history. The greatest I'll quote moment. from him. Working men's Paris with his commune will be forever celebrated as the glorious harbinger of a new society. It represented a magic formula for freedom. It was the first living example of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And Marx had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Marx had nothing to do with it. He was blamed for it, but he was in London at the time and he was just sitting back and he was like, oh, I'm not going to say he, he took he took credit for it, but he, he obviously was. He did a lot of I told you so's. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the case, it's the watermark for, for popular revolutions um, in Europe at the time. And it, and it, it looms over Europe for the, the following decades. Now, another place that has a long history of political radical, radicalism. I know this is an awful segue, but, you know, please forgive me. Um, is the Russian Empire. God, I was wondering when we were going to start talking about Russia. <laughs> mainly as a reaction to the centralized autocratic state. I mean, how the hell else are you supposed to take power? Mm -hmm. In fact, how do you think the Romanovs got into power in the first place? It was through a secession crisis. Before the, the Romanovs, there was the Rurikids, who were, they were the dynasty that traced themselves back to the Kievan Rus. Uh, they were the lineage of Prince Rurik, uh, one, of the, one of the brothers, or I forget the full history there, but... One of the brothers who comes from the Kievan Rus and, and starts the Russian Empire. Um, the Or not the Russian Empire at the time, but Muscovy. Uh, these rebellions, though, previously, was, you know they were like squabblings between lords and the wealthy. The first real attempted revolutionary change in Russia with a, like a, with a populist political goal was the Decemberist Revolt of 1825. And that happened after the death of, Al of Tsar Alexander I. A group of middle-ranking army officers, they try to stage a military coup and overthrow the autocracy and replace it with some type of constitutional monarchy. Mm. These were essentially nobles who had been exposed to European Enlightenment ideas during the, the, during the Napoleonic Wars. When Russia was chasing France out, they... 
these were these were nobles who were exposed to you know the technology and the modern the modernity of of western europe and they came back and they tried to replicate that in russia by overthrowing overthrowing the czar um this rebellion is easily suppressed uh five of its leaders were were, were hung and i think over a hundred other other officers were sentenced to exile in siberia um i'll quote from historian alan wood and why the revolution did not carry the weight of other movements the major reason why the attempted revolution did not succeed was that there was no revolutionary situation when the decemberists decided to take this take to the streets there was no national emergency merely a minor hiccup over the royal secession there was no economic crisis no external threat no breakdown in the social order no mass disturbance in fact none of the objective circumstances that usually constitute the prerequisite for successful revolution as was the case in 1917 but although it failed perhaps because it failed the decemberist revolt can properly be regarded as the beginning of the 19th century revolutionary movement its members were revered as martyrs and the ideals and example of these gentry revolutionaries continued to inspire later generations of reformers, radicals, and revolutionaries alike. Okay, so what that my immediate thought when I was thinking about this was, I and, and we can take this out if this is not cool. <laughs> but um, my first thought when I when I heard you read that was of the Jan Six riots and how that didn't work and how there was no national emergency. It was just like a minor hiccup over the quote royal secession <laughs> of uh, Trump to Biden. But then you kept reading, and we get to the part of the quote where it says even though it failed you know that revolt can be regarded as the beginning of 19th century revolutionary movement now makes me a little bit more scared (laughs) so you know history doesn't repeat itself but it certainly does rhyme hey man i mean we've already had we've had a pretty good run 300 um, no not even 300 years 250 it's gonna happen at one point Mm -hmm. maybe 50 years from now maybe 100 years from now Maybe Something's gonna next give. year. Who knows? Maybe next year. Ooh. I mean, this is this is eighteen twenty five, and the actual Bolshevik revolution doesn't play take place nearly a hundred years later. So, right. I think I think you, you can. So that was two hundred years ago. So that means we've got at least another hundred years before the real revolution before, in the United States. Before the real thing. Okay. <laughs> now, um, so. Alexander the first, his father, his I think it's, yeah his father uh, Nicholas the first is a reactionary monarch. His reign is is the high point for absolute rule, but despite being a, a tough autocrat, Tsar Nicholas the first he understands something important. He understands that Russia has very deep systemic issues that will eventually implode if something isn't done. And one of those big problems is Russia's surf population. Now, before we get into that, though, let's pull back and take a bird's eye view of the Russian Empire in the 19th century. Russia is this huge, colossal state. It's a juggernaut state. In terms of how many people were living within the borders of the Russian Empire, um, I see different numbers, but here's one from here are the numbers that historian Malcolm uh, Edward Falcus provides. So, in 1722, 14 million, 19 million in 1762, 
35.5 million people in 1800, 74.1 million people in 1860, 126.4 million in 1897, and 171 million in 1913. So the population doubled between the year 1800 and 1860. Yeah, and, and then that's it, like it, two generations, right? Yeah, and it grows about 400% from the year 1800 to the year before the first world war uh, the first world war broke out mm-hmm. so just this massive population boom and between and, and to put that in more in context the modern russian state has a population of around 140 million and right. that's a modern country so the russian empire prior or the russian empire had more land obviously but um than the modern russia that we know but you know, you think populations usually go up, not stagnate. Or go now, down in this case, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there they there's less territory uh, that the Russian Federation governs because, the, well, let's not get into the Ukraine situation on this, yeah. this series. So um, now what's important about this population boom is that between eight between 80 and 90 percent probably closer to 90 percent of the population are poor are poor peasants who are living in rural neglected areas i'm not sure what the exact number of these peasants are serfs but i've seen estimates that that there are around 48 million of them before 1860 Mm. whatever the actual number is it's a lot and Take in mind, most Russians didn't really didn't really have that much contact with the state. It wasn't like the Soviet Union where you know the state's up in everyone's business. It was more just kind of like a neglected society who you know who was attached from the from the state, who was attached from the from the autocracy itself. Right. They just happened to exist in the in the land that the state decided that they govern. Yeah. To the Russian elites, the peasants were kind of like these, you know, primitive, primitive beast who may as well have been from 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 some far off country. They were just this permanent underclass that that well, you know, that that walked the fields or worked the fields. Here's a, a quote from from Richard Pipes. Russia's rural population was a world unto itself. It was integrated neither into into society at large nor into the administrative machinery. Its relationship to the officialdom and the educated class resembled that of the natives of Africa or Asia to their colonial rulers. The peasantry remained loyal to the culture of old Muscovy and lived untouched by the westernization to which Peter the Great had subjected the country's elite. Russian peasants wore beards, spoke their own idiom, followed their own logic, pursued their own interests, and felt nothing in common with the beardless agents of authority or landed gentry who exacted who exacted from them taxes, rents, and recruits, giving nothing in return. They owed loyalty exclusively to their village or, at most, to its canton. The principal legacy of serfdom, which had lasted for over 250 years, was to estrange the peasant from a society at large and imbue him with the feeling that the world was a lawless place in which one survived by force and cunning. This mentally made it very difficult to mold him into a citizen. Hmm. So, Interesting. unlike a lot of other nations or nation states that are being built at the time where you have this kind of centralized state that is really, 
turning people into citizens through you know mass propaganda campaigns really when you think about it through education mm-hmm. through media through all this that it were you know that's happening in France that's happening in Germany of course they have their lower class rural populations but the 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 situation in Russia is unique there's like a clear very separate uh class that's completely removed from the the elite class and then the the, the poor rural class where there's like even a lack of influence from the major power centers in Russia uh, over the the poor peasants, meaning that they're not even able. Like France was able to export its cult, its elite metropolitan culture to its rural class and make them into French citizens. That dynamic doesn't work as much in Russia. You understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, totally. or that's I think that's the major the point that Richard Pipes is making in this. So, serfdom as a practice, it was originally just a contractual relationship in which land and land and security had been exchanged for labor. Mm-hmm. But this simple arrangement, really, when you think about it, over centuries it developed into this really strange, bewildering, complex system. And what's interesting is that in Eastern Europe, serfdom had actually arisen much later, um, much later as as opposed to Western Europe. Serfdom is introduced into Russia, Ukraine, area, Poland, um, roughly at the same time that slavery is developed into the New World. Mm. And it's, um, you know, serfdom catches on because of the expanding international grain market of the 17th and 18th century. This is what leads to ensurfment of a formerly free peasantry. And Russia, in Russia, also take in mind, they were used in the military as well, which we'll get to in terms of, you know, when we get to the modernization. But here's a, I found a paper about serfdom uh, from Shane O'Rourke from University of York. The further east one went, the harsher it became. In Prussia and the Austrian Empire, the serfs still had the protection of the law and the occasional attempts by the crown to limit the levels of exploitation. In the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and in Russia, the peasantry was subjected to excessive exploitation backed up by a ferocious array of powers to ensure compliance. The peasants here, like slaves, existed outside the protection of the law. These serfdoms were much closer to chattel slavery than to serfdoms of Western Europe. Peasants could be bought, transferred from place to place, and their families broke on the whim of the lord. Not surprisingly, serf revolts in Eastern Europe had levels of savagery far in excess of those in Western Europe. Mm. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Sounds like slavery to me. (laughs) Yeah. So it's important to note that the surf rebellion of this time, it rarely it rarely was meant to overthrow the system as a whole. It was more or less trying to rectify local grievances um, or like specific family complaints rather than trying to, you know, change the system. But going back to the Romanov family, Nicholas I is this tough autocrat. And during his reign, he does make attempts to emancipate the serf population. You know, he's quoted as saying how evil it is and how bad it is. It was actually kind of a common view within the Russian elite where they were starting to realize that it was wrong. Kind of mirrors like a lot of the, you know, a lot of people in like the North, um, even the South and in the U.S. when people were like, okay, the slavery thing is kind of a real bad evil that we can't seem to get rid of. That was kind of the mindset that was going on um, in, in, you know, within Russian elite circles. It was more about these Russian elite circles from the cities trying to kind of balance that power with or balance th- that move with the, you know, the, the lords and, and nobility that, you know, had who, who were benefiting from serfdom. Well, he tries to do it. He tries to abolish serfdom, but it gets bogged down by the bureaucracy in Russia. Um, the Russian state, you know, to its day right now, through the Soviet Union to the Russian Empire, it's always been known to have a very um, large bureaucracy where it's very hard to get things done. Um, that was the same going back then where it, he tries to, but he gets, he, he's not able to achieve it. Well, in 1855, he dies and, uh, he dies of natural causes. His, um, it's gonna be one of the few people we talk about who dies of natural causes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His death also coincides with the Crimean war, which Russia loses to. Uh, versus a combination of the British, French, and and, and um, Ottomans. When his son Alexander II comes to power, the Russian economy was going through a very bad financial crisis. The economy was almost exclusively agricultural, while the West was industrializing and leaving Russia behind. Russia was also facing a growing deficit crisis. So between 1853 and 1858, the overall state deficit increased from 52 million silver ruples to 307 million silver ruples. Um, And then all that combined with coming off an embarrassing military endeavor. Alexander believed that the modernization of the military, like the economy, was going to be impossible without, without the uh, the uh, abolition. 
of, of serfdom. So when Alexander gets into power, he disregards all the bureaucratic committees that are telling him that uh, Russia is not ready yet for emancipation. And he grants them freedom basically by executive order. From his perspective, if serfdom were to be abolished, it's better that it should be it should come from him rather than there be some sort of popular revolution. Oh, foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm paraphrasing that, but he, he does say that. He he says, you know, I, it's better that we do it than if, you know, they do it themselves. Right. Because <laughs> then that will not look great. Now here's the problem. The problem is is that there's really no model to follow. There have been emancipations in the past. The Alexander, he asked the Prussians for advice. How do they do it? And the thing is, the Russian emancipation was going to be a way bigger project than than the Prussian emancipation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a country at this point. The population, what did I say the population was in 18 of uh, 74 million people? And then, you know, roughly, you know, up to 40 to 50 million of them are serfs. So we're talking about emancipating 50 million people. So they don't know where to start, really. Yeah. It's going to be a complicated, it's going to be a huge national project, a national project that the state themselves, they're they're, they're not, we'll see, or is not really capable of doing it Mm -hmm. and keeping people happy at the same time. So this is how it worked. This is the plan they gave, they came up with. Landlords would give land to the serfs and the government, and then they would issue them bonds and compensation. But they were, they were required to make redemption payments to the government over a period of almost 50 years. Okay, the so problem the, the, was, the land that the serfs got, they had to pay, pay the government back for those bonds? Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. The problem was redemption dues were set at 6% interest over a period of 49 years, meaning that peasants were forced to pay a price for their land that was far more expensive of its more expensive than its current market value. And then they would just, you know, they would immediately fall behind their payments to the government. I mean, Um, sounds like my interest rate right now, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like whatever interest rate that I get. Yeah, I'm at 5.7, I think, percent for a 30-year loan. And I mean, it's not very good. So <laughs> don't you hate, don't you, don't you despise anyone you know who got like these crazy ass, cheap ass interest Two rates three like a couple percent, years ago? Yeah. Yeah. I fucking yeah, I hate their guts now. It's like, oh, I got a house. Got a house in in 2019. <laughs> for 100K. Well, like 2020 is when they, when they were getting those crazy interest rates. I know. Um, I digress, though. Yeah. I'm so where was I? Interest <laughs> rates. Interest rates. Okay. The Federal Reserve. <laughs> Printing money. And inflation. Um, okay. Um, so, all right. Going back. They fell behind their interest rates. Another feature of this legislation was that the freedom and the land that they received was not granted on an individual basis. It was issued on a collective basis. So although they were technically freed, they were still legally bound to their village commune. 
in effect, the peasant had merely exchanged their bondage to from the the serf owner to bondage to the village commune. And I guess the, the what the regime thought, or the you know, the Russian Empire thought, the government thought that the fifty thousand landlords who possessed estates were going to do a lot better in their in their crop yields without serfs, and then they would continue to provide you know some sort of political loyalty uh, or administrative leadership in the countryside. The government also expected the peasants would. Uh, not only produce enough crops for their own consumption, but they were hoping that they would be able to export it. Um, and at the same time, there's technology ad- advancements, so you know they were banking on that. But this leads to that, you know, modern medicine, technology advancements. It leads to the, the, the huge population boom. Um, so the population expands from 56 million in 1861 to about 110 million, according to the 1897 census but this population boom comes with a finite amount of land so in the past and we're talking about like you know land that can you can farm arable um, land the arable land so in the past the crown had you know provided new lands by conquering by conquest but at this point there's not that much more land to conquest you know that's that's you know in the russian mainland so neither the government's expectations wasn't they were not realistic and emancipation left both the former serfs and their former owners upset now by the year 1990 in the central russian 1900 uh, not 1990 (laughs) in the year 1990 with boris yeltsin in the year 1900 in the central provinces of russia virtually um, all peasant households were organized into communes. The commune was an association of peasants who were entitled to a share of the land at the commune's disposal. All affairs of the commune were settled by village assembly, and then they were supposed to replace the you know the the feudal system that they had. I'll read from uh, from Richard Pipes, and he describes peasant life in Russia. The life of the Russian peasantry revolved around three institutions, the household, the village, and the commune. The household, the basic unit of Russian rural life, was a joint family, rather, and mother unmarried daughters and married sons with their wives and children. It typically had between six and ten members. Under the, the, climatic, the climatic conditions prevailing in Russia, with a short growing season that, that called for extremely intensive but brief burst of work in the spring and fall, large households fared better than small ones. The household was organized into strictly autocratic manner, with its head called the Bolshak, enjoying complete authority over its members and its belongings. On his death, the household usually dissolved, the individuals dividing the common property and moving out set up their own households. This practice made for a lack of continuity in Russian rural life. In sharp contrast to their counterparts in Western Europe and Japan, Russian villages were in constant flux. Two features of the household require emphasis because they explain a great deal of the Russian peasants' social behavior. The individual member of a household had no private property, except for his personal effects, since all belongings were at the disposal of the commune. He also had no personal rights, his interests being subordinated to those two of the joint family. 
Thus, the great Ru Russian peasant had no opportunity to acquire a sense either of individual rights or of private ownership, qualities indispensable for modern citizenship. He was accustomed to living under the arbitrary authority of the Bolshak and, collective and to collective ownership of means of production. The commune was not unique to Russia. Similar institutions have been identified at earlier periods of history in other parts of the world, but by 1900, for all practical purpose, it could be found only in Russia. It was a system of organizing the holding and cultivation of a land starkly different from modern conceptions of ownership. So what, what Richard Pipes is trying to make the point here is that the kind of the foundation of collectivism was already in place in Russia because of the just the rural commune traditions. Does that make right. sense? Right. Yeah. Once I mean, their, their family units were pretty much already set up to be like the types of, you know, socialist or, or communist um, systems that, that would get put together later on. Even the Bolshak sounds like Bolshevik a little bit, but I know they're totally unrelated. <laughs> well, I think the other point that Richard Pipes is trying to make is that the there was no uh, didn't have the same value of private property. Right now, he does he does say that there's difference between you know personal effects and private property. So private property there being like land or a home. Or something like that. Those things weren't private, but personal things like your clothes and like, you know, the shit that you use on a day to day, you still had ownership over those things. Just want to make that absolutely clear because a lot of people do get that a little bit confused when they're talking about uh, like left leaning politics, specifically socialism and communism. There's still private ownership of things, just property isn't private. <laughs> or, you know, means of production. Exactly. Well, that would can that would be considered property in in a capitalist society or in a Western context. Yeah. So, going back to Alexander's reforms, um, in addition to emancipation, he made it easier for people to have access to education, which creates these growing student movements, which we've mm -hmm. been talking about in our Red Army series. There's going to be a lot of those, um, by the way a lot of those callbacks to the red army faction. I'm actually glad that we did that first. Yeah. Um, so student movements get wild. They go crazy. Usually they're the foundation of like some type of, uh, revolutionary sympathy. The old regime had a lot more control over what was taught in schools. Alexander the second, he relaxes these policies. So middle-class students and intellectuals, were, um, you know, they were attracted to the message of populism. Followers of this, you know, and there were different strains of it, and I don't have the knowledge to go through all the different strains of populism in this time period, but, you know, one of the big ones was that, um, you know, Slavic peasants, they've represented this type of mystical future. There was like a mythology around them, kind of like how, how, um, Native Americans were, are romanticized. The Slavic yeah. peasant was romanticized. And, hmm. um, you know, there was something called like the, the Westerner Slavophile debate that was going on in, in like the university scene where, you know, Westerners believed that Russia had to adopt the principles of like the French and the, and the Germans and the British and adopt some type of constitutional 
um, constitutional monarchy or and in, in get individual rights. Um, you know, they were influenced by by a lot of the French socialists and then you know German philosophers like Hegel. Um, mm-hmm. And then there is the Slavophiles, um, and they would argue that Russia's unique cultural and historic traditions made it basically incompatible with Western models and that, you know, they should be focusing on developing their own national identity. Kind of similar to some debates that are going on in Russia right now Yep. about Russia is like, um, what's, um, Alexander Dugan, who is his argument that Russia is a civilizational state and not a nation state, meaning that Russia is his own unique civilization altogether. So these arguments, Debatable. you know, they, they have roots <laughs> somewhere and, and not saying they start here, but they show up here. And, um, you know, they also talk about the decadence and rottenness of modern European civilization in, in contrast with like the pure qualities of the Orthodox Christian Russian peasant. So, mm-hmm. you know, that you hear, you see that if you read Russian stuff, um, I don't read Russian, but like I read translated Russian, um, yeah. you know, you hear, you know, you see that, that arguments how the West is right. decadent um, and we're better off closing our doors to them. All of this is just very clearly an agenda without, without the nuance, but still comes up a lot. Yeah. So as time goes on, um, student movements start becoming more radical as uh, historian James Billington puts it in his study uh, James Billington has this really, really large, long study um, of not just the Russian Revolution, but it's really just a history of like socialist revolutionary movements in the 1800s and in early 1900s. It's titled Fire in the Minds of Men. If anyone wants a to read that, it is uh, it will take you a long time. But uh, Fires in the Minds of Men uh, comes from the from Dostoevsky. Uh, the novel, the Russian author, um, that's who, that's where the phrase comes from. It's in one of his books. Youth movements begin with a revolution of rising expectation during an age of political reform. The original revolutionary student movement had arisen in Germany a half a century earlier out of hopes raised by reforms in Prussia. American student revolts a century later were to grow out of the renewed sense of political possibility generated by the Kennedy era and the civil rights movement. In like manner, exaggerated youthful expectations of change under Alexander II led perhaps inevitably to disillusionment deepening into despair once his reforms came to be seen as partial and incomplete. This leads to a generational identity among young Russians in the 1860s having a new ideological quality. They had no desire to complete the program of concrete reforms begun by Alexander II. They rejected the entire traditional society and believed in their own newly discovered evangelical faith and scientific method. Total negation was born in part out of disgust with the incompetence of old Russia that had to that had led to humiliating defeat during the Crimean War, and in part of the long repressed resentment against the the, the pretension and anti-rationalism of Romanov Russia. Thus, with these more radicalized movements becomes the period of radical secret societies. Now, 
throughout the 1860s and 1870s, um, thousands of Russian university and high school students from St. Petersburg and Moscow, they get caught up in revolutionary passion. And you're going to get a kick out of this. Um, they leave the cities. Russian intellectuals, they travel deep, deep into the Russian countryside to, quote unquote, to serve the peasants. So this these, is like a Russian Burning Man or something like that. Like <laughs> they go, they go and they travel to serve the peasants and the student, they were from middle class and wealthy families. These students, um, they dress up typically from, um, or they dress up like typical peasants. Um, so they you know, wear rags basically. And they try to immerse themselves in Russian peasant culture. What is this like a foreign exchange program or some shit like that? That's really funny. It was the in- intelligentsia version of Dances with Wolves. Yeah. Or Avatar. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Didn't Av- Avatar completely ripped off Dances with Wolves? Yeah. <laughs> no, funny enough, Avatar is like one of the most suc- like successful movies in Russian history. In Russian history? Yeah, Avatar, at least the first one was a huge hit. Mm. I mean, it was I'm a huge sure. hit everywhere. What's that? It was a huge hit everywhere. It was a really big hit in Russia, Avatar. Impressive. Oddly enough. Apparently, there's a new movie. I'm not, I haven't really looked at Avatar 2 and how it's performing there, but I know there's a new Russian blockbuster out right now. It's like more of a drama. Um, that is kind of overshadowing everything else. But yeah, Avatar was a humongous hit in Russia. Um, maybe they didn't see Dances with Wolves. So you weren't <laughs> maybe you get that feeling what like oh this is kind of taking the same exact story from that film right but with like hot blue aliens well everyone can everyone can identify with hot blue aliens that's the thing you know everyone everyone wants to bang a hot blue alien who doesn't no yeah so dances with peasants these um these young people they planned to teach the peasants ideas that they would learn, that they were learning from, you know, their revolutionary pamphlets that they were getting from France and Germany. And they planned to work alongside of them and, uh, and, and merge with them and become one with the peasant. And uh, this was inspired in large part by the belief that the Russian institution of the village commune was the shortest path to Russian socialism. You know, the Slavic peasants, they, they mystically represented the ideal of, uh, you know, the ideal of like the, the perfect society, the future society. And then many of these students and, and some of the different Russian revolutionaries that there's a lot of them at this time. So we can't really go over all of them without getting dragged down a rabbit hole so i'm sure i'm gonna miss some and if anyone who's like a hardcore who has hardcore knowledge into this will probably want to kick me but i'm yeah. gonna name a few, a few um so one of the big ones was mikhail buchanan right uh or i think it's pronounced Bu- uh buchanan uh, bakunin bakunin but i, mm-hmm. I keep on calling it saying like buchanan that. in my head this complete angle <laughs> mikhail buchanan <laughs> yeah mikhail buchanan which doesn't sound right at all but it's just <laughs> in my head 
So I'm just going to call him Mikhail Buchanan, um, who was actually Marx's arch enemy. Yep. They weren't friends. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, can you imagine like a bunch of like leftist American college students that decide like, oh, we're going to, we're going to make a trip to Mississippi and start, you know, working with the, uh, you know, the farm people <laughs> and teach them stuff that they learned in like sociology class from like Marxist professors. Can you imagine the, like the type of reaction that, <laughs> that these people would have? Yeah. Well, I, I think in America, people are kind of used to it at, at this point just because uh-huh. of television. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I imagine, I, I imagine it's what like the reaction you- is if you go to like a real conservative, like, let's go, let's go teach the Taliban about gender equality. <laughs> Have you ever seen way back in the day, um, the, uh, one of those first, one of the first like real big reality TV shows that were like kind of super popular, the simple life with, um, Paris Hilton and, uh, Nicole Richie. Do you remember that yeah, show? I do remember like, that. Unfortunately, this is exactly this, like that, that story. Bunch of rich people decide to go to a bunch of regular people's houses and live their lives. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was a little different than that. I don't know. I think it was the same. They weren't going around. That's hot. For entertainment purposes <laughs> and just saying, that's hot. That's hot. That's hot. <laughs> oh my God. Well, this is, this is the image like... that I have in my head. So <laughs> don't ruin it for me. <laughs> All right. Your perverted vision of this. Um <laughs> So what happens is that they're rejected. So the, you know, these in- intelligentsia groups that, that are going to the countryside, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they stick out like sore thumbs. They, people are like, who the fuck is this guy? Um, they're rejected. They don't fit in. doesn't work out. It ends up becoming a disaster. A lot of them are actually even given up to the Russian police who, you know, the, at the same time, there's like, real violence that's breaking out between some of the more radical movements. So when someone out of place would come to these villages, the, a lot of times that they would be given up or they'd be noted that the, the authorities would be notified. So the, you know, the police can come and pick them up. This is the period of what, uh, Dostoevsky was, was writing about. And one of his, you know, it, I mean, he has he's a lot of famous novels, but one of his most famous novels uh, was the demons or devil or possessed, whatever. There's it's called all three ways. Um, the version it translates I have is differently. Called, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the ver- yeah, it's translated differently. The one I the book I have is called the possessed, but I know it's called demons and devils. Um, but in short, the novel is about a group of revolutionaries who plot the destruction of a small provincial town. And by extension, you know, the point that I think Dostoevsky is trying to make is that by extension, this small provincial town is, you know, represents all of Russian and human civilization. And they do this by, you know, this is kind of this real dark story about how they bewitched the, this, uh, this governor's, uh, the governor's wife, who, who uh, you know, runs the town. And, you know, this woman is supposed to represent high society in general. Um, 
and then you know there's like a famous scene where you know the how the village burns to the ground and they're like the fire is not on the roofs i forget how it goes but the fire is in the man's mind i'm paraphrasing that part but um another revolutionary group were the nihilist um or you know ide another ideology because there's different groups within the nihilist Mm -hmm. Um, they were inspired, inspired by a man, by a man named Nikolai, uh, Chernyshevsky, Nikolai Chernyshevsky. There you go. And his 1863 novel, what is to be done and what is to be done. That's the name of Lenin's novel that he wrote in like 1902 or 1903. I forget the exact year, but that's he copied i mean he didn't copy it he was inspired by him but he took the he took the name because lennon was so inspired by this guy and the novel it's about you know a circle of young revolutionaries who are you know it's about the it's the anti it's it's i think it's the response to dostoevsky's book um Mm. that that paints revolutionaries in a bad light or one of them is the response to the other, or I don't know if one's the response to the other or not, but it's a they, clap back. <laughs> they're, they clap. They, they represent, you know, contradicting views. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a, and, and there you're, you're absolutely right. There's a ton of these, um, subgroups and, and different types of ideologies. And, and, and I actually got wrapped up into one in particular, uh, because they're really, key and central to one of the one of the points that you asked me to do some research on which is an assassination attempt or multiple assassination attempts but this group was called the people's will um you know so there there was a lot of these radical factions that were breaking out and there was this one in particular called land of the freedom that eventually splintered off to become the people's will or narod narodnaya volia so these groups were um, led by a man named Sergei uh, Nechayev, and I know we've probably said about a hundred different names, but you know, I don't really think these names are super important to these this particular part of the story. Um, so you can throw that piece of information away. Uh, unlike uh, other uh, activists, though, this guy he was he came from serf origin, so he himself was a serf. A lot of the other activists were like you know these hoity-toity, you know middle to upper class folks that wanted to do an exchange program. <laughs> um, but in kind of, 1860- kind of like from the red army faction. Ex- exactly. Exactly. So in 1869, this guy crafted a manifesto, uh, called, uh, catechism of a revolutionary, uh, which he co-wrote with that guy that we talked about a little while ago. Mikhail Bukhani. Mikhail, uh, uh, what do we call him again? Mikhail Buchanan. I call him Mikhail Buchanan, but I just can't. <laughs> my brain just says Buchanan when I see Bakunin those letters or in, whatever, that, in that order. And I cannot, I just cannot pronounce the Russian pronunciation. I'm sorry. No, I'm just, no. And that is, honestly, honestly, have to t- like, okay, these people are important. And if you really, really want to get into this, like, you know, you should learn these names and, and these dates. But honestly, not super important for the story. This dude it's not super important to the context of what we're trying to get to the 1917 revolution. Exactly. We can get, right. we can get lost Some dude in the wrote weeds, a but they're, they're <laughs> definitely important figures to the story. But exactly. if we go too far off and get into just Russian nihilism in the 1860s and seventies, 
then we'll never get to where we're going. We're just <laughs> no. we're just gonna get stuck. Right. So don't don't get hung up over over you know Pappy Cannon or whatever his name is. <laughs> anyway, so this book that they write, Catechism of a Revolutionary, that is kind of important. You should remember that. Um, you know, it, it kind of blended religious devotion with politics, and there's this one famous passage in it uh, that reads. Uh, the revolutionist is a doomed man. He has no private interests, no affairs, sentiments, ties, property, or even a name of his own. His entire being is devoured by one purpose, one thought, one passion, the revolution. Heart and soul, not merely by word, but by deed. He has severed every link with the social order and with the entire civilized world. With the laws, good manners, conventions, and morality of that world, he is mercilessly enemy and continues to inhabit it with only one purpose, to destroy it. Now, you know, I'm reading this from a totally different context, and you're listening to it from a totally different context, too. And it, for me, at least, it's kind of hard for me to read that and be like, yeah, fucking break the system, right? <laughs> break morality, break, you know, uh, whatever. But I mean, obviously, this guy's a, a serf, right? He, he came from... Uh, a situation in a context that fucking sucked right and for them and for a lot of these revolutionary people you know with these thoughts you know, the only way to to make any real change is to break the wheel right um i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times i've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places somalia indonesia pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. And so this book was so much of a big hit with the youth in Russia that, uh, you know, the group Land and Liberty was formed. Uh, and their main goal was to destroy the state and the status quo and give Russia back to the peasants. Um, but the topic of how to destroy the state was a bit of a debate among their group members, in particular, uh, whether the use of terrorism should be allowed as a means to that end was a bit of a hot-button topic. Um, so in October 1879, the Land and Liberty Group, they split into two factions. Uh, one faction was the terrorists that we were talking about. So they, they are Narod, Narodnaya Volya, or translated the people's will. 
Uh, and then the rest of them formed a different group called the Black uh, Repartition. Uh, and that group uh, basically rejected terrorism and instead they supported uh, socialist propaganda campaigns uh, among workers and peasants. So basically, you know, just going up to workers and, and handing them pamphlets, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to be talking mostly about the People's Will because they're the interesting group. Um, don't condone anything, any of the things that they did, but uh, honestly, they, they made a lot more interesting uh, things happen. So people from this People's Will group, they were already kind of up to some nefarious shit before the subgroup was formed. They were doing things like bank robbery and murders and stuff like that. And they would suggest that, you know, when they would do these acts, they would say, hey, we're part of a larger, you know, organization, a larger revolution called the, quote, Russian Social Revolutionary Party, which that actually didn't exist. <laughs> there was no such Rosh Russian Social Revolutionary Party at the time. But the name itself, it was it, it was legit and fairly scary sounding enough of a group name where people took them seriously. And the reality was that this group of the people's will, these terrorists, it was like 30 to 40 people tops. And this really reminds me, Henry, of the West German Red Army faction, uh, who we talked about on a few episodes here, uh, who basically turned the entire, you know, West German, you know, country upside down for like 22 people. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Just going, just going back to that and reflecting on that, on those, uh, on those episodes that we did. Mm -hmm. The, I They're feel like the Red Army, that. yeah, the Red, the Red yeah. Army faction of Western Germany was more revolutionary Marxist nihilist than, you know, modern day leftist progressive 100%. um yeah you know we, we we care more about like gender equality type stuff and racial justice this was this is very These much like burning down class <laughs> class warfare burning down the system yeah for sure um but yeah, so you got to hand it to these national terrorists back in the 1870s, uh, by the way. So just to add that, which <laughs> yeah. equality, what? Yeah, that wasn't a thing. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, you you get you really do have to hand it to the left wing groups, these terror groups, because they they honestly get shit done with like almost no people, with like a very lean head count. Um, anyway, pretty quickly after uh, this group forms, uh, the People's Will decided that they wanted to assassinate. Alexander II, the Tsar. Uh, and this became their primary goal. Like on paper, they had, you know, the same generic left wing ideas about spreading socialism and overthrowing autocracy. But in practice, like what they were actually doing, um, you know, their organization was totally centered around one thing. And that was, yeah, it was actually kind of impressive how unitarily focused they were on this just one thing, killing this one guy. Uh, and so the people's will were mostly formed, like I said before, of the intelligent, the intelligentsia, uh, so the upper and middle classes. And, you know, in one way, it helped them a lot that that was their makeup because it helped them to gain a lot of popular support among those groups. And this is especially important in the money department because, you know, I mean, we've, we talked about this when we were talking about the Red Army faction was the first thing that all terrorists need to do terror is money. So, you know, they're, they're, I read about some, you know, upper and middle class folks that were sympathetic to these groups that literally donated their entire fortunes 
to the cause, you know? So there's that. But, uh, I mean, anyway, before Alexander II, you know, spoiler alert, he, he does end up getting assassinated uh, in 1881 uh, on March 1st. Um, but before that, there were at least five unsuccessful attempts on his life. And most of them were carried out by the this group that we're talking about, the People's Will, which is why I took over that background context. And I want to talk about all of them. And honestly, when I was doing this, it was super fun. It was almost as crazy, almost, I'm going to say, as, um, you know, Franz Ferdinand's assassination. The only thing that I think makes Franz Ferdinand's assassination a little crazier is because it all, all the attempts happened on one day, <laughs> you know, and it all kind of happened all in one go. Whereas these ones happened over a couple of years period, which by itself kind of still feels a little crazy. Anyway, it was, it was the the craziest assassination though, to me is this, is the 1903 Serbian regicide of King Alexander of Serbia. Is that the one that got filmed? No, no, no. We did a whole episode on this. And we've done like hundreds of episodes. (laughs) Which one? Dude, we recently did an episode in our world war one series on when, when, um, the Serbian nationalists in abyss. Oh, the they, one where they threw him off the fucking building. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I got them confused. Yeah. Yeah. No, that one's absolutely crazy. Yeah. 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 And like, dude's hand was like, had like a spasm, and it grabbed onto the the balcony, and apparently they had to chop it off with like a saber. Yeah. That yeah. Was like, that one, that was just yeah. crazy out of the sheer brutality and hatred. That was just gory. That one was gory. What it wasn't. This, there this... wasn't. Go ahead. Oh, just go on. I was gonna say it wasn't as like. It was just like brutal. It was like a. It right. was like Gaddafi style coup. True. True. More than yeah. a, just I mean, an assassination. That, that, that was that was that that's harder for me to read and like talk about. But like these ones, these ones kind of feel funny. I know. I know the guy died, right? And we're also talking about somebody that died like two hundred years ago. But. It's it's just funny how they try to kill this guy. It, like if you take yourself out of the context for a moment, it almost reads like a like a Looney Tunes episode or some shit like that. Like that's how that's how silly this shit get like goes down sometimes. If you can suspend your <laughs> your morality for a moment, it is a little interesting in that respect. Anyway, let's talk about all of those attempts and get off the topic before I make myself sound like an idiot. <laughs> um, okay. April 4th, 1866, Alexander II, he's out, he's out on a walk in St. Petersburg, uh, just outside of his summer gardens, and a small crowd forms at a, you know, respectable distance um, to just basically gawk at the czar. You know, it's not every day that you get to see your sovereign, after all. And out of the crowd, this 26-year-old kid, uh, Dmitry Karaz- Karazakov, shit, no, Karakozov, there we go doesn't matter what his name is. Some kid pulls out a gun and tries to kill the czar. And he ends up getting stopped by another young peasant. This dude is a hat maker's apprentice, and his name is Osip Komisarov. He sees the gunman pull out a gun and aim it, and Komisarov swats the gun just as he was about to pull the trigger, which causes the shot to miss. And the shooter gets arrested pretty much immediately. And the czar goes and asks him, like, hey, why'd you try to shoot me, dude? And his answer was, you fooled your people. You promised them land, but didn't give it to them. And this was in reference to the abolition of serfdom 
that happened in 1861, right? So calling back to what you were talking about, like that botched event, right? Um, He was pretty pissed about it, right? So that was the first assassination. Now, the the dude that saved him, Kamisarov, the savior, he was immediately given a hereditary nobility title. So, you know, he was congratulated in the palace. You know, they, they fucking put a medal on him or something like that. I don't know. That that's pretty nice come up for a hat maker's apprentice, but you know, kind of an interesting story that, you know, just in the right place at the right time, save the czar, get a medal. That was the first attempt. Second attempt is in May of 1867, and that was about a year after the first attempt. Alexander II is in Paris this time with his sons Vladimir and Alexander, who would later become Alexander III. And they were attending the World Fair. And so he and the French Emperor Napoleon III, who we talked about early on in the beginning of the show, they were in a carriage uh, leading to an event when um, some 21-year-old Polish kid comes out of nowhere. His name is Anton, uh, Anton Berezovsky. So he runs up to the carriage and shoots at the Tsar at like real close range. Or at least he tried to shoot at the Tsar because his gun exploded. <laughs> The gun straight up exploded and the bullet ended up hitting a horse, you know, it's a poor horse. He gets caught immediately and confessed that he did it to free Poland, uh, which at the time, of course, was part of the Russian Empire. Um, four years before that assassination attempt, of course, Alexander II had, had violently put down a rebellion in Poland. So there's obviously ample motivation for this kid, you know, to try and kill him, but it's just comical how his gun just straight up exploded. He was right there of all the things that could have happened. Uh, Alexander II had some really great luck in that respect. Um, so this gunman's family ends up getting punished for what the gunman did, and they get exiled. And he gets 40 years of hard labor uh, and actually, you know, did most of it and was set free in, in 1906. So... He, he didn't die throughout the entire hard labor, which is crazy. Uh, third attempt uh, was on April 2nd in 1879. And is when Alexander was out on another walk around the Winter Palace, this time without any guards. And in this case, this guy was either ballsy or stupid because you know, after two attempts on his life, he's still walking around outside with no, no, no problems. But evidently, and I read this, is that he got into the habit from his father, Nicholas I, who also used to go out and walk without guards. Um, so, you know, he's, he's out there being like, I'm not afraid. I'm do whatever I want. Take a walk. Anyway, he's on his walk. And the Tsar, some dude runs up on him and shoots him at like medium range. And miraculously, again, I swear, the Tsar has such great, like, dodging skills or some shit, because he misses. Gunman misses. And that shooter was 32-year-old Alexander Solovy, and this guy was a nobleman and also a member of the people's will. Anyway, shot number one misses the Tsar, and the Tsar just hauls ass, or runs away for his life. It's probably the first time he's ever had to do that, which is funny. Soloviev uh, catches up with the Tsar and fires two more shots at closer range. Again, both shots miss, 
And I swear all of these gunmen are like stormtroopers because they cannot hit a mark like at all. Uh, I judge them for being a terrible shot, but also, you know, thinking about it realistically, I, I've never had to like shoot a gun after running. <laughs> I've like never had to them. assassinate a czar before, so I can't really no. speak to that experience. No. <laughs> anyway, so a military officer that happened to be in the area, he catches up to them. And this is something I read, but I don't fully understand. Apparently, the military officer whacks the gunman with a with a saber, right? But just like whacks him. And he did it so hard that the saber bent. But like, why not just cut the guy? <laughs> like, I don't understand what what's going on here. Did he hit him with the backside of the sword or like the side of the sword? Did he just suck at his job? Like, I don't understand what went on there. But he whacked him. He whacked him with a sword. Um, and, you know, the gunman manages to get off another two shots and run, runs away. Both of those shots miss. Um, but he eventually gets caught uh, a little later on. And this guy ends up getting hung in front of a crowd in St. Petersburg. I forget exactly how many people were there, but it was like tens of thousands of people. Like they made a whole big thing about it for the third attempt. All right. Fourth attempt. There's a lot of these guys. (laughs) On November 1879, the people's will, they catch word that the imperial family were going to be on their way back uh, from Crimea to St. Petersburg and that they were going to be traveling by train. And that they were going to be passing near Moscow. So they decide to blow the train up, right? Pretty good idea. Now, normally, the way that the, the, the czar would, you know, travel is that they would send off a first train ahead of the time. And that train is going to be carrying, like, all of the czar's stuff. You know, like, all the things that the czar needs to do czar stuff. And also all of the servants that the czar needs. This way, when he would arrive, he could just get off the train and, you know, he's not going to want for anything. He's, he has everything he needs. It's already set up for him. Um, so they, the, the, you know, the people's will, these folks, they set up three bombs along the route, right? Because one isn't going to be enough because they've tried to kill him like a million times. So they need to, you know, need to, to have some backup plans. So they put one in Odessa. Uh, one is near uh, Alexandrova, Alexandrovsk in the Zaporozhye region in Ukraine, uh, now modern-day Ukraine, of course. And uh, the third one was, like, near Moscow. So for the first bomb, the train ends up changing directions last minute, and it actually didn't go through Odessa, so that plan failed. The second bomb, it just straight-up didn't explode. <laughs> the bomb didn't work. And now for the third bomb, and this is the, this is the just com- most comical of this, the third bomb, the, the 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 lead train with all like the czar's stuff and and you know all of his serv- servants, it was having some technical problems in Kharkov. So they just did a switcheroo and they're like, all right, let the czar's train go up ahead. But the terrorists are expecting the czar to be on the second train, not on the first train. So they just go ahead and let the czar through without blowing up the the czar's train. And when the second train comes by, which is the the train with all the czar's stuff instead of the czar himself. They blow up the train with extreme precision. They hit exactly the fourth car, right? Uh, which is where they presumed that the czar was going to be. But it was the wrong. But it was the wrong. <laughs> and apparently, the only thing that they blew up was, you know, the that car stored all of the czar's fruit or some shit like that. They just blew up a bunch of fruit. 
which is I just think is hilarious. Imagine if they saw it was like a bunch of watermelons, <laughs> just and they see everywhere. all the watermelons exploding. Yeah. Like we got him, we blew his guts out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's the that's the sight I have in my head. <laughs> But it's oh, just like, and then it lands just, on somebody's face, and you're like, you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> I got my brains God. in my mouth. It tastes like watermelon. <laughs> watermelon? <laughs> He's got the czar's got watermelon brain. <laughs> watermelon? Yeah. Anyway, it's just this really funny. It's it's like extremely bad luck for his assassins, and extremely good luck for the czar. All of it is just you know, if you can suspend again the idea that they're trying to kill somebody. You know, it it's kind of funny. Um, all right, fifth attempt. Uh, th- there's this 22 year old kid. His name uh, is hard to pronounce. His first name is Stepan, um, and he's also a member of the the People's Will, the terrorist group. Anyway, he he goes and gets himself a job in the Winter Palace as a carpenter. You know, and and all of the help, you know, in the in the palace, all the servants. They're allowed to sleep in the palace in like this special apartment that's under the dining room. So over a year's time, this kid somehow sneaks in a hundred pounds of dynamite and hid it all under his bed. Like, how the fuck does somebody do that without getting caught? It's it's a freaking miracle. Or over a year's time. Over a year, this dude is sneaking in like a little bit of dynamite, a little bit of dynamite, a little bit of dynamite, and putting it under his bed. Eventually, he has a hundred pounds of dynamite under his bed. That's crazy. I guess you that's sneak a, in a pound at a time, right? I guess so. I mean, that's just some straight up security negligence, though. Because, like, I'm trying to think about, like, what does a hundred pounds of dynamite look like? It's not a small amount, right? No, it's a pretty good amount. Right? That's not something you easily hide, I feel. But he pulled it off. Anyway, so he he sneaks in 100 pounds of dynamite. On February 5th in 1880, the czar was expecting some important guests and was going to be in that dining room to, you know, uh, entertain his guests. And this was, you know, this guy's chance, and he decides to detonate the explosives that he had in his room, all 100 pounds of it. Um. And 56 people got injured, but the czar was totally fine. Why? Because those guests ended up being late, and so the czar wasn't where he was supposed to be. And, you know, dude didn't even know about it. (laughs) So, again, perfectly executed plan. Somehow manages to get 100 pounds of dynamite in. Still does not. Doesn't work. And this dude actually manages to escape and keeps doing terrorism uh, until he gets caught taking part in the murder of a of a military prosecutor in Kiev a few le- years later. Um, now there are two other attempts on Alexander II's life, but they got abandoned for various reasons, so we can just skip those. Um, but I guess now we can talk about the one that actually did stick, um, the one that worked. So this is what fifth or seventh, eighth? I don't know. One of very many attempts. And this one probably wasn't going to go the way it should have gone as well, but I'll breeze through it. So the czar, uh, the, you know, these terrorists, the, the people's will, they, they got into the habit of, of like studying the czar and, and studying all his patterns and his habits. And they, they figured out a plan 
for you know one of his many walks. Uh, and the plan was to dig a tunnel and put bombs underneath it and explode it when the czar would be over it. And, uh, you know, so they rented this apartment where they were going to start digging this tunnel. Uh, but they weren't very, I don't know, quiet or, or <laughs> I don't know how you want to put this, but they raised a whole lot of suspicion from their neighbors. And so somebody snitched and their house got, their apartment got raided and, Somehow, the police didn't find anything that was out of order, and so it didn't get shut down. So plan is still on. Then later, the organization, uh, the organizer of this operation, uh, Zeli, how do you say this? Zelbayov or Zelyabov. This dude gets arrested for something totally unrelated, and obviously this threatens to bring down the whole operation. But somehow plan still manages to survive after even his arrest and very much like a lot of the attempts that came beforehand the czar on the day that they decided to you know blow up this this tunnel that they did that they dug out the the czar decided oh i'm gonna go visit my cousin today (laughs) instead of doing what i was supposed to do and you know obviously this meant that he wasn't going to be traveling along the route where the tunnel was so instead they you know they had to switch to plan b which was you know, using these five pound homemade hand grenades. And so they set up along the route that they knew that the czar was going to take to go see his cousin. And two of them managed to throw the bombs. And these bombs didn't actually kill the czar, but actually wounded his troops. And kind of stupidly, the czar gets out to check on on the troops. And, and at long last, the terrorists threw the last set of bombs, which end up killing the czar. And that was, that was it. He, they finally got him after like 10 tries yeah, Nicholas, I think the story is that Nicholas II, they saw him bringing in his, either his wounded body mm-hmm. or his grandson. Um, and now the, his wounded body or his dead body. The sucky part makes, is that killing this guy, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in the, next, in the next string of things, but killing this guy really just gave way to Alexander III, who was actually a huge pain in everyone's asses particularly for these folks that were in these um, revolutions. So, you know, they should have stuck with the devil that they knew, in my opinion. Yeah, so next episode, we're probably we're going to cover the backlash that this sets off. Mm-hmm. The, the creation of the Russian Empire's secret police and really the the battle that ensues between revolutionary movements and, and the, the, the Russian secret police, the Okana. Um, and then we'll see where, we'll see how this goes. Um, it's, 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 we're, we're being, we're trying to fit this into a reasonable hour or a reasonable time, but also cover as much that we think is relevant to the story of the Russian revolution and we're still decades away from 1917, but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> well, yeah, we're gonna get there. Okay, let's wrap this one up. So, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. It means so much that you guys listen to us week in and week out. Um, if you want to support our show, the easiest way is to rate 
and review the podcast. Rating and reviewing the podcast is the number one way to support our show, whether you're listening on Apple, whether you're, you're listening on Spotify. Especially on Spotify. If you can rate us. What's that? <laughs> especially on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, especially on Spotify after they deleted our podcast feed. But we should be back as of now. So yeah. rate and review the podcast. And uh, you can also join our Patreon. And in our Patreon, you are going to see episodes that you're not going to see on our feed. So usually episodes that we record a couple of weeks earlier that we plan on releasing later. So early access and ex extended access because we, we record longer episodes and have extra content in those. And then you get access to our Slack. In our Slack is this secret society of, friends. of special friends. <laughs> and I think you guys will all enjoy joining our Slack community. So, um, yeah, do that and uh, have a wonderful day. And we will look forward to talking to you next week. Peace. Peace. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.